Good morning. I'm sure if you look at the picture on the screen, you can spot what's unusual about it. It wasn't taken by me, it was taken in Yorkshire in January last year, so I'm told. The pictures that follow, rather than being photographs, are taken from a children's book called Topsy-Turvy World. And if you look at the first picture, I'm sure it's fairly obvious what's topsy-turvy about it. The next one is probably not quite as clear, but I'm sure it doesn't take too long to spot the rather tiny elephant and tiger. Everything in the picture is upside down. It's not as we expect. That one is rather more subtle. But I'm sure as you begin to look at it, you will spot the penguins that are sitting in the tree. Everything is topsy-turvy. And as Christians, we are called to live a topsy-turvy life, to have upside-down values. Trish is going to bring us our Bible reading. I'm looking, hopefully, that she's here. Yes. And uh, as she does so, see if you can notice the ways in which our thinking is to be upside down from the world's way of looking at things. As she comes up, perhaps you can be finding 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in your Bibles. We're starting at verse 18 and going through to chapter 4, verse 13, and it's on page 1,146 in the Church Bibles. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So then... Men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. 
It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Trish. I hope when I began this morning, you had alarm bells ringing in your head. I hope you were sitting there thinking, we haven't had a Bible reading, or perhaps whispering it to the person next to you. Because the start of our passage tells us that the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So unless my words are firmly based on Scripture and on God's word to us this morning, we are left with the sobering thought that they are folly. So on that note, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that this morning... You will open your word to us. May my words not be my own, but yours. May your Holy Spirit speak through me and speak into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
please keep your Bibles open at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 on page 1146. And we're beginning at verse 18 of chapter 3. And as we've already seen, it tells us that the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you're probably sitting there thinking, but I've heard this message already. It's something that Paul has written about in detail in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2. And yet it's true, isn't it, that often we need to hear a message more than once, that we don't listen to advice when it's given to us. One of my earliest memories is of being told by my mother that the hot plates on the oven stayed hot for a long time after it was switched off. Like a typical child, I didn't believe her and decided to put it to the test. I learnt my lesson the hard way. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to learn this lesson the hard way. He has a deep love for them. And so, for the first time, his words actually become more forceful. And we have a direct command, beginning with the words, do not. Verse 18 says, do not deceive yourselves. And it's easy to think that these words are written to people out there in the world, perhaps as we listen to charismatic speakers in the election or not so charismatic in some cases. But the words say, do not deceive yourselves. They're written to the church. And Paul carries on in verse 18. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool. The Corinthians are boasting about their supposedly wise teachers They think that Paul's simple message of the cross is foolishness. But we can never move beyond the cross. It underpins our salvation. Paul illustrates his point about wisdom and foolishness by quoting from Job chapter 5. We've got a quotation there in verse 19. And he reminds us that those who are wise in the world's eyes can get trapped by their own schemes and ambitions. And yet, as I read those words from Job in the actual chapter in which we find them in the Bible, I can't help wondering whether Paul had the whole context of those words in mind when he quoted them. Let me read them to you. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. The quotation that we've got in verse 19 of our passage comes, as you can see, just two verses after the words, the lowly he sets on high. 
Paul has already told us in chapter 1 that God chose the lowly things of this world. It's a message we've had already. But the world's wisdom says, push yourself forward, make yourself heard. Do we promote our own opinions? Or do we spend time with God, admitting our dependence on him and his wisdom? Wisdom requires humility. Chapter 4 continues that thought by telling us the next way in which we're to have upside-down thinking. And again, it's an idea that Paul has already expressed in the letter to Corinthians. It's there in chapter 3, verse 5. Leaders are servants. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. The background to that word servant comes from the idea of being an under-rower in a galley, a bit like the one you can see on the screen. If you imagine being in the bottom row of those rowers, you have no choice but to go in the direction that's set. Your goals are determined by someone else. And in the same way, Paul's goals are determined by Christ. He carries on and says that leaders are entrusted with the secret things of God. In other words, the gospel. And to understand exactly what Paul's saying here, see if you can think back to some of the parables of Jesus where we have a steward or an estate manager If you imagine, they are in charge of a vineyard or an estate, a bit like the one on the screen. The the estate manager is accountable to the estate owner. They can make day-to-day decisions. They have authority over the people who work there. But ultimately, their accountability is to the owner. And it's to the owner that they must remain faithful and trustworthy. It's worth noting as well that the slaves on the estate aren't the ones who judge the steward. It's the role of his master. And in the same way, Paul is saying that he is accountable to God and he will be judged by his master, who is Christ. Let's bring that up to date. We're expecting a new rector. But Richard James, when he comes, has been entrusted with that role by God. He is accountable to God, and it's to God that he must remain faithful. No doubt there will be changes. We might not agree with some of them, but his ultimate accountability isn't to us, but to God. Our place isn't to moan, grumble, and judge. Verse 5 says, Do not judge anything before the appointed time. I don't know whether you watched the TV drama Broadchurch, but judging before the appointed time is talking about something like the detectives, Ellie and Alex, doing an initial in the interrogation of the suspect in the police station. 
They don't make the final judgment. The final judgment is made by the judge in the court. And we're not to take that initial role because the final judgment is God's, because God sees the heart. That doesn't mean that there aren't situations where we are called to make judgments and to be discerning. And Paul's going to talk about that in the next chapter of Corinthians. But in our lives today, we're called to make constant judgments, aren't we? As a teacher, I had access to a website where I had to frequently review myself against my targets of the year. I had to make judgments about my teaching assistant and her effectiveness. Even as a trainee lay reader, I recently had to write a reflection on whether I was meeting the criteria for reader ministry. You might be making a judgment about that this morning. But Paul says, even our own conscience can be flawed. God's criteria are not ours. God looks at the heart. And when Richard comes, he's ultimately accountable, not to us, but to God. So, wisdom is foolishness. Leaders are servants. In our last section, verses 8 to 13 of chapter 4, Paul gives us the final way in which we're to view the world thinking upside down. Weakness is power. The Corinthians have far too high a view of themselves. And these verses are actually laced with irony and sarcasm. The Corinthians have the gifts of the Spirit. They think they're among the spiritually elite. They think they're like people at a feast who've eaten to the full. They think they're kings. Possibly that verse is saying they think they're already reigning with Christ. Paul says in verse 8, how I wish you really had become kings so that we might become kings with you because if they were kings, Christ would have returned. Instead, Paul feels like he is at the end of a procession heading for the Roman amphitheatre. Ahead of him lies a fight to the death with a gladiator, or perhaps a mauling by lions. And then verses 10 to 13 carry on with more ironic comparisons. Paul doesn't beat about the bush. He gets straight to the heart of the matter. And if I was a Corinthian reading this, I'd be feeling pretty uncomfortable. It's not difficult to recognize who is really wise, strong, and honored in this passage. Paul's sufferings echo those of his Lord. And the full force of his words comes through in verse 13. The Corinthians think they are kings. In contrast, Paul feels that he has become the scum of the earth. If you look at that pot on the screen and you imagine that it's been used to cook some meat, 
There's a fatty residue that's accumulated around the rim of it. You have to scrape it off when you clean it. It's not very pleasant. That's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. Or perhaps the dirty scrapings that you sweep up off the floor. Yet as we read it, whose life echoes Christ? The Corinthians or Paul? Kings or scum of the earth? As I read this passage, I've got Paul's words from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 ringing in my ears. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships. Why? Because Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. Which leaves the question, are we more like the Corinthians, rich, well-filled, blinded to our needs? Do we cling on to our evangelical heritage, the length of time we've been a Christian, our spiritual gifts, to give us a kind of spiritual smugness? Are we reliant on ourselves or on God's mighty power? Do we still hunger for more of God? The Corinthians were proud. They boasted about their leaders. Yet Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 7, don't boast. In other words, don't be puffed up because everything you have, your leaders, your spiritual gifts, your very salvation have been given to you by God. What do you have that you did not receive? We're back to that whole idea of humility. Humility involves taking our eyes off worldly things, off ourselves, and instead to humbly recognize everything that God has done for us and given us. Have a look at chapter 3. Verses 21 and 22. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Leaders have been given to us as, by God as our servants, not as people to put on a pedestal. When we first moved to Norwich, I remember visiting a church where all eyes were on the leader. And I came away feeling uncomfortable about where that church's main focus was. When Richard arrives, let's keep our eyes firmly on God, who's graciously provided our new rector for us. Paul carries on the world, life or death, the present, the future, all are yours. Everything we have, we owe to Christ. We deserve nothing. We've been given everything. New life in this world, eternal life in the future. There is no room for the boasting that Paul mentions in chapter 3, verse 21, 
And again in chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, the Corinthians were proud of their leaders, puffed up because of their spiritual gifts. John Stott said that as a Christian, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Pride says, listen to me. I know best. And so we judge our leaders instead of recognizing their accountability to God. Pride wants us to look good in the eyes of others. Being the scum of the earth is never going to be an attractive proposition. The antidote is to acknowledge with grateful hearts everything that God has given us. But humility doesn't just mean thankfulness. It also requires surrender. The Corinthians were acting as if they were their own masters, but they are Christ. They are of Christ. They belong to him. Their aim and ours should be to please him, to allow his Holy Spirit to form us in Christ's image. And if I'm honest, as I've prepared this, I found God gently pointing out areas in my life where I promote my own opinions too forcefully, where I judge others. Humility isn't easy, but let's have the courage to ask God to show us areas in our lives that don't reflect Christ, to pray for humility. Paul reminds us at the end of verse 22 that Christ is of God. He is one with God, but his whole earthly life was directed towards obedience and God's glory. Christ's words were not just his own, but his Father's. He came not to be served, but to serve. He was despised and rejected by men. Paul's example was Christ. To some, his message of the cross was foolish. He saw himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. He wasn't afraid to become the scum of the earth. We are of Christ. But none of us can live an upside-down life in our own strength. On this Pentecost Sunday, let's thank God for the gift of his Holy Spirit. And let's allow his Spirit to mould us in the image of Christ. The band are going to play and sing the song, Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. As they sing it, please use it as a time of <coughs> prayerful reflection before God to ask what his Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning, perhaps to echo the words of the song in your own heart. Let's pray. <coughs>